Welcome to the Winnow, a podcast about dining in the South and beyond. I'm Robert Moss, the author of Barbecue, the History of an American Institution. And I'm Hannah Raskin, food editor at the Post and Courier. Today, we're doing the convenient and cheesy edition of the Winnow because we're talking about cheese. We're talking about convenience or inconvenience uh, when it comes to food and convenience and cheese uh, when they come together in a lot of, of different forms. Um, so, Hannah, I think to start this out, you said you needed to talk about your experience at Zombie Bob's. I, I do. And because I know <laughs> all I know about Zombie Bob's is it's a fairly new pizza place here in Charleston, and it's really not so it's standalone. It's inside of Frothy Beard Brewing Company's, uh, the Frothy Beard Brewery, right? So it's a cheese a pizza place inside a brewery. That's all I really know. Okay, so just to give a little bit more background, they um, had a truck for some time. I don't know when the truck first started operating. Um but they were in the truck. There was either a mishap that involved the truck or the driver or both. Um, but it was off the road for some time and is now, I believe the truck is once again functional, but their permanent home is within Frothy Beard Brewing across the river. So um, a friend of mine had been curious because part of their shtick is they do Chicago deep dish pie. And of course, if you talk to people from Chicago, they will say this is not the greatest thing to ever come out of Chicago. <laughs> and nobody in Chicago eats Chicago pizza. You mean Chicago it, pizza in general, not not Zombie Bob specifically? Uh, correct. People, the, the, from, the, the, people the from Chicago. Chicago land does not have an opinion of they, Zombie They Bob's. love their Chicago dog, but the pizza, right. not so much. Exactly. So if you go to Chicago, and I say this as a daughter of two native <laughs> Chicagoans, um, what you want to do is you want to eat beef or you want to eat a hot dog, which is one in the same in Chicago. Actually, what I meant was you want to eat a beef sandwich. Um, lots of great things to eat. Um, a deep dish pizza is not one of them. Okay. Um, but whatever. I think it's terrific when, you know, Charleston gets these different food groups. So was willing to give it a try. The problem with a deep dish pizza, well, one of many problems for people <laughs> who are familiar with deep dish pizza, is it is very deep. And so it takes a long time to bake. This is not, you know, this is not the kind that you just throw in a microwave right, for a couple yeah. of minutes. Right? I don't know. I haven't seen theirs, but usually they're like two or three inch deep pans and they're very thick. Right? Absolutely. So, so kind of the standard slam on this sort of pizza is that it's not pizza, it's cake, right? Because it's just, it, it's <laughs> Your, it stands high and it's okay. So um, knowing that I was going in the you know middle of a work day, I said to my friend, why don't you call and ask we can just put the order in? <laughs> oh, no, we don't accept any orders over the phone. Really? Right. So, oh, because we already knew from some online that it was going to be 30, 40 minutes, right? So they said, no, no, we don't accept any orders on the phone. So I said, you know what? Not a big deal because we're going to go over there and there is another. And I'm thinking maybe they have problems. People call in and then they don't show up or they show up an hour and a half later and the pizza's totally. cold or whatever. So maybe I can see that. At I... this point, my sympathy is still 100%. Yeah. 110%. No problem. So. And I thought, you know what? This is actually perfect because there's another restaurant I have to make a review visit to. Now, far <laughs> from there, no problem. We'll go there. We'll place our order and we'll go to, a, to another review lunch. So. Right. A bang bang, as they call it in the industry. So <laughs> we're doing these two lunches. So we get there and said, I'd like to place an order um, and we'll be right back. And they said, once you place an order, you cannot leave the premises. You cannot leave the premises. Right. So until we had to stay. And I said, <laughs> well. Yeah, this this rings. Well, keep going. Uh, okay. that, that, so, I said, so many questions. I, I said, well, I've paid for the pizza. So it is now my pizza to do what right. I wish with, including not being here when it and shows up. And if you all show up, they still have their money and someone could even maybe eat the pizza. So there's no way it can go wrong for them at this stage, right? It took a managerial intervention to, <laughs> to say that this time and this time only I would be allowed to leave. But as the manager said, he said, but he said, we can keep your credit card, right? 
Wow, no. keep I, I, I said, <laughs> to ensure you come back? I guess that they – I mean, this is why I bring this to us because I, it was a bizarre situation. Wow, this is like uh, – you know, so many restaurants, when you put your name in to wait, they'll give you the little beeper, the buzzer or whatever, so you can go wherever you want and they'll beep, buzz, and, and, and then you come back. Right, and I would but say this one is of why the, They won't put a prison anklet on you to keep you from leaving. <laughs> you know, it's a whole new electronic possibility. Right, it's really interesting. <laughs> I will say I think that's been a great technological innovation. Even more than that, the um, when they text you, I find that incredibly convenient. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, mean, you don't have to carry around that stupid oh, flashing right, red Right, 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 because that really is sort of a tether, right? You can yeah. only go 30 feet in front of the front doors. Anyone who eats at Olive Garden knows. Yeah. <laughs> so you've got to be stay stay in the area. I've actually never tested the range. I don't think on this, but you know, sometimes it's much further than you think. Well, okay. I, I feel like I've been in very long waits where I have tested the range. <laughs> See how far I can go. Um, so I don't know. It was absolutely bizarre, and I, I had no precedent for it in service. And so I don't know. Now, if this and you just did you discuss the reason with them, or did they just were more? I mean, I discussed in a very loud voice. <laughs> <laughs> So you made it safe. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. I, so I, and ultimately, I got my way. They made the pizza. I got my credit card. We came back. Um, the pizza was as expected. Oh, no, wait. I take that back. We came back. The pizza wasn't ready. Ah. And so I was sure, seeing as we had given them 45 minutes, that the secret was that they were going to wait till they saw us again yeah, to actually start right. that thing. Right. There's, I mean, there's certain restaurateurs who are very particular. They they don't they want you to eat the food. We talked about this uh, a while ago. They don't want you necessarily to do takeout because the food's not going to be excellent when you first get it. And I totally and, respect which that. Which makes sense. I and, think that's fair. And had they voiced that concern that, yeah. boy, you know, our pizza is so fantastic. We need you to be here. But instead, what they kept saying is we've had people walk out. And I said, but I've already paid. Oh, wait a minute. So they've had people walk out because it took so long. Possibly. But, but I, as long I, as they get paid. As long as the, there's already been an exchange. I guess so. I guess what this comes down to is who owns the food. My yeah. feeling is as soon as you have paid for the food, even if you are at the restaurant and the restaurant produces the food, once you have given money for it, that food belongs to you. Well, it seems like maybe, maybe I'm picking, maybe what's happened is they have this long pizza. It's deep dish. It takes a while. And you see restaurants like this all the time. Our food takes a long time to cook. Please <laughs> right. allow whatever, whatever. Right. Um, actually, there's at least one other pizza joint in town that has that sign by the register. Yep. I notice every time I order. And, and that makes sense. But maybe they had a problem where pe- people ordered and then the pizza didn't come. To, so they left without paying for it. Or they left and, and they had paid, but then demanded a refund and had to leave and all that. Maybe there, maybe that's a problem they're trying to solve, but it doesn't seem like okay, once. Seems I mean, like the way to solve it is just if you pay up front, and, and which is what they require. So, so I buy your second argument. Maybe, maybe there is just so much frustration. <laughs> although it seems like if that's the case, they want you to get off the premises yeah, as soon as uh, possible. Why, why keep an irritated person around? I don't know. So obviously, as I think this through, there are limits. I mean, the food belongs to you. Yes. I mean, you still have to treat it. I think in a, a respectable manner. It's not your food to like throw at the table next right. to you, but. I, I, I feel really strongly that this should be a fundamental principle of restaurants. <laughs> Once yeah. you have paid for food, the food belongs Who's to yours, you. yours, and if you want to pay for it, leave. That makes total sense. They want you to pay before you leave. That makes sense. But then if, if you want to take two hours to come back and it's ice cold, well, then it's your problem. Right? <laughs> you, so you waited. <laughs> but it was, so, it was so interesting in the context of a brewery where you're eating um, – 
I'll use no adjective, where you're eating pizza, um, for them to be this controlling. Because, you know, I did in the back of my mind wonder if this was a trickle-down effect from all the tasting menus where it's like, you know, that we time things out. And I I think I was telling you, um, I just recently went back to McCready's, which has a tasting menu, Mm -hmm. which when it first was introduced, everything was timed to the minute. Um, Sean Brock was really proud of that. And yeah, that was actually uh, yep. uh, you and I both reviewed McGrady's yep. restaurant. It was That's the right. last thing I uh, actually restaurant formal restaurant review I, I did. Right. I think we had a little different experience. Um, we talked about some in the past about why it may have been different. I had an absolutely wonderful experience. A part of it was the timing because it literally was like this orchestrated evening from the music to the everything landing and all that. It was it was it was like a you know, ballet maybe the wrong wrong term, but it was like some kind of highly choreographed uh, dance or, or production that they had going on there. It's really so. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if other people's experiences were more like yours or more like mine, but they have moved away from the timing, which I find really interesting. Um, they have now introduced, or at least according to press releases, they've introduced just walk-in seating. Well, that was, yeah. And originally, McCready's new format, because it, mm-hmm. it, you know, a long time, it's just been McCready's restaurant where Sean Brock was. About a little over a year ago, I guess, they split it into two formats. They had the McCready's Tavern, which was more of the sit-down order from a menu kind of typical restaurant. And then the McCready's, I think it was called McCready's, but it's tasting menu, tasting room only. And there was really more like, you have it our way. We're going to take care of you, but we're going to do it our way. Take it in advance. Take it in advance. So you pay up front, no, no gertrude included, all that. You could either choose wine pairings or not. And there were two seatings a night, and not, you don't come when you want to. You come in at whatever it was, six o'clock and eight thirty, whatever the, the two seatings were. Yep. Um, so it was very much, and then you no know, choices unless you you know really, I guess they would you know, if you're allergic to something, they would take care of it. But but you don't order. It, right. They they serve you the, the menu. I absolutely loved it. It's not everyone liked it. I can see how though. You can't really. That's 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 only going to work for certain dining out. Nights. It's not going to be very convenient if, for instance, you can't get there by six and you got some, and you need to be home by ten. <laughs> it's not a good right. option. And so they changed that, or so they said. So they put out a press saying that now you can just walk in. And I think you know I went back to the original press release and, and they had dropped the ticketing in advance a while back. The that ticketing was, in advance, yeah. and it, they now said I think in the press release if you read all the way through it, which I did not before <laughs> I walked in, <laughs> if you read all the way through, it did say something like we'll see it at six, six thirty, seven, eight, eight. 30, something like that. Because so, they're still having to choreograph they, and stage this. It's not. They'll it's a have to choreograph and yeah. stage a bit. So I walked into um, people who have been there will know you still walk into McCready's Tavern first, yep. the way you would have walked into the old uh, McCready's. And then they take you through the back into McCready's, the old Monero, just to make but, everything but, but, but it's different because when I ate there, you went in the oh, door. Yeah, I think the front you did door. go in the door. We went from okay. the front door right off of East Bay. In fact, we got there early mm-hmm. and sat at the bar at McCready's and had a drink, which was great because right. they have a great bar. I love that. And then the bartender said, we said, you know, it was time for us to eat. I said, well, should we just go in the back door because there's a door oh, that connects Oh, that's right. Your drinks came through the door, but you he, had to go around. And he said, yeah. And he said, no, no you, well, you could, but no, you really want to go around the front to get the full experience, which we did. It was nice because they gave you a glass of champagne when you came in the front. It sort of set the whole tone. Isn't that so interesting? So they actually wanted you to go around to East Bay interest, but now you well, can't, right? You, you can't. I'm sorry. I, I, I guess they've sealed the door because yeah. again, I had gone off now with this idea. I'm going to walk in. So I was pulling on the door. <laughs> I thought, what kind of walk-in is this? You know, I mean, you'd have to kick in. You can't walk in. So Walk-ins welcome if you can get the door. Exactly. So I went to the host stand at McCready's Tavern and explained my dilemma. I said, I am attempting to walk in. And she said, 
oh, we don't do walk-ins at McCready's. Well, but what? <laughs> did you say, ma'am, did you get the press I mean, release? Did you get the pre- I guess most hostesses <laughs> don't get press releases. I think that's fair. She had no idea. So once again, just like it's happening. She box, literally did not get the memo. Uh, she did, she literally <laughs> did not get the memo. And once again, we had a case of managerial intervention. <laughs> There was apparently the, the press release didn't make it to very many people. <laughs> I had a tough week. Uh, so they finally said, all right, um, I, I think we can accommodate you. Um, and I, I got in there. They made, so I sat for about 15 minutes at the bar and they led me in. There were um, three couples and me. So to be clear, the place was not filled. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how big the place is. What, 45 seats maybe? Uh, maybe not even that maybe many, but it's more, than, it's more than seven. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, but so what was interesting about the timing is we started together, but I probably finished six courses before I went out. Yep. I mean, it was now it's you're done. They take your plate. You get and the you're next dining one. alone. So you are sitting alone. there chatting or anything. Which I'm yeah. going to recommend against doing at tasting yeah. menus. I, I, it's really, I love dining alone, um, but it is not the kind of place where you can strike up conversation. And then was your original, very first McCready's visit alone? It was well? alone. Yeah. But I sat next to a really nice couple. Okay. So you did have something. <laughs> well, that was, I mean, a part of, I think the reason I liked it so much is I was with my wife and we were, you know, out for just a, you know, it was actually her birthday. We went out for you know, a birthday dinner. And so we talked, we chatted. And we talked to the people next to us, and and we we weren't in a rush. We didn't, but we you need somebody. It's almost like you want you, you need to bounce back and forth. Oh, this is great, and talk about the food and analyze it. I think if you're sitting there by yourself, you probably have too much time to think right. about. Just it. To, and just to really quickly set the stage for people listening who have not been there, the the scene is it's a very small and intimate space. Yeah. It's one large room, and the it's dominated kind of by like this horseshoe shaped table. It's kind of reminiscent it's of like a, a bar. hibachi a restaurant. Bar. Yeah. If you, it's, it's, it's bar height. Yeah, but it like reminds me of hibachi if you've yeah. ever been to that. It's like exactly you, you like sit that. around. Yeah. There are a few tables. Well, um, but, but the kitchen is removed from it. It's not. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's it's not. They're not like cooking in front of you. I just mean like seating. But it is you're, like you're, you'll be yeah. seated around with other people. I don't know, man. People are friendlier at hibachi. I'll tell you that. Oh, it's yeah. like yeah. Well, they have the flaming volcano. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, don't don't get me started on hibachi. But um, but so it was trickier right this time because it was so empty there was no one to my left so when it turned out that the guy to my right wasn't going to talk to me yeah. he kind of got stuck um so but i think you're right i think and this is interesting tasting menus people have been talking about for a long time are they here to stay are they going away mm-hmm. but i'm after that experience i feel like they really have found their niche um it's like the romantic dinner place yeah. because you and your date are having the exact same thing you're having a shared experience um I think maybe they work romantically. Like I said, it was three other couples. I think it was like a 20 anniversary, 10 year anniversary. And uh, it looked like the first time they traveled out of uh. town together. <laughs> it was really sweet, you know. And so maybe, maybe that's the, the Tasty Menus feature. Yeah, I think um, I, I, this is before your time in, in Charleston. There was a six tables, um, which was a little little tiny chain. Each one was very different, but it was like a, the concept was a chain. It was actually in Mount Pleasant in the Long Point Shopping Center, and it was it was an all tasting menu, very similar format where they had a, either one or two seatings a night. That was it. The chef would come out and introduce each course, and it was six tables, which is they, had, they wasn't around one common table, but you were in a small dining room with six tables. And it was it was a date night place. I mean, you'd go in there, and it'd be lots of people. Sometimes it'd be like double date looks like, or you know, just you know, for old friends and everything. But yeah, you're right. That and my wife and I had a wonderful dinner there. But again. 
it was it was our and this is back when our kids were little, so we was actually got away and yeah. we actually had a grown up dinner. It was great. So I think you're right. I think that there's something, and it is interesting because I don't think that's what t- tasting menus were initially designed for. It's supposed to be all about the art of the no, chef, and, and they don't that, really do tasting menus on Valentine's. No, you, you know, the, the worst restaurant night of the year. Right, right. And so it's it, the whole idea is that this is about appreciating the culinary, you know, grandeur, not looking to someone else's eyes. You're supposed to be looking what's on the plate, <laughs> right? But I, I think this is where it's going. Well, interesting. Yeah. Yep. Theory. I'm going to have to yeah. file that one away. I'll, okay. I'll definitely be stealing <laughs> yeah. that. We'll check back on Valentine's future. Day. So um, just to maybe wrap up on on what your conclusion. So you can you can walk in. You may have to you explain can walk it. In. I would walk in with better. a press release in your yeah. pocket. But <laughs> probably better to go ahead and get that reservation. Why not get the reservation? Yeah, right. Because let's be clear. I mean, this is not I, – I was intentionally going to test if this claim was true. Um, the reality is it's expensive. And very few of us are in the position to, like, drop that kind of money yeah. on a whim. Um, <laughs> it, there are so few times that you push away from your desk and like, ah, tasting menu tonight. I mean, it's like, it, it's something you got to kind of plan well, for. Yeah, and I think, you know, to tie that in, because I think you just wrote a, a piece recently recently is uh, about the other side of McCready's, right. which is the McCready's Tavern, which had a equally, I think, ambitious and interesting concept a little over a year ago when, when Sean Brock and the whole team there at McCready's launched it, which was, he was very much at that time, I think really into the sort of the gilded age, grand cuisine of the, you know, the era of baked Alaska and all, all those, those wonderful things. Uh, and I think you were writing recently, they, they've made some changes both to the dinner menu and the most recently the brunch menu. Is that right? I almost can't even talk about this. <laughs> I am so heartbroken when Eater comes to me at the end of the year to ask, like, what's you your know, biggest what disappointment you cry? of the year? <laughs> I found it devastating. Um, so I'm sorry. I should back up. I, it's uh, it's not all about me. Uh, so what had happened is, as you say, I actually thought McCready's Tavern was more ambitious and more interesting than McCready's ever was because it was based on sort of this forgotten era in yeah. in cuisine, right? And, and really, one that was. Um, and, you know, just very ostentatious and everything was supposed to reflect wealth and, you know, the, for the people who had it. Um, and so there was some cool stuff on that menu. So um, critics everywhere were smitten with the calf's head soup was really cool. Calf's um, head soup which was taken from the unrivaled cookbook in 1885. So really looking back to that. Gilded Age, yeah. the age of the industrialists and those insane banquets where they would eat on horseback and all these it, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, think about the idea of a calf's head. I mean, that is like the ultimate in luxury. Like, you know, kill that little <laughs> before he becomes a steer. You know, it's like it, it just seems so, you know, just fragrantly wasteful. Fragrantly wasteful, excuse me. And also fragrant. It was a great soup. Uh, they had the aspic, which was so, so nice. Yeah, nobody um, makes aspics nobody anymore. Nobody makes aspic you, you anymore. If you bring the aspic back, uh, mm. bless you. Oh, it was great. So I could go on and on. And in fact, I did. You can read it if (laughs) if you ever want to pull that up. Uh, And now they're done with it. It's really... It's now really they're sad. totally they're done with it, but I would say they're totally. scaling it back. They're scaling it back. Yeah. And I so what they have done, so for brunch now, some of the newer items is they have, are they banana pancakes? No, souffle pancakes, excuse me. Lemon souffle pancakes. Lemon pancakes, yeah. Lemon pancakes, granola and yogurt. Granola and yogurt. Not that's, really the grand era of that's, cuisine. That's the one that's, that's just a, That's a practical, you know, you, but you know what happens. Somebody walks, you get in with a table. 
people sit down and somebody's like, wow, crab Louie. Uh, and, and somebody else is like, there's nothing I can eat on here. And they walk out, you know, or whatever. So put, but put that granola on there. And, right. You know, um, the person who's watching their diet can, it, can have something to eat. Exactly. You know? And those who aren't, because at dinner time, it's really shifting more to a steakhouse orientation. Um, they've expanded their selection of steaks. They have a lobster on the menu. And yeah, just, I noticed that they used to original menu was just Newburg entrees. Either. Now they have a breakout section of steaks. Breakout and, section of and steaks. And I think in your interview, the chef there says, uh, that steaks are one of their best sellers, and so you know, can't no one went broke selling steak. Exactly, and um, right, and so what the chef told me is that you know if people want something, if they want an Asian dish, we'll serve it. <laughs> just, <laughs> I just have such trouble with this because I do feel that if a, a restaurant group and a chef as well known and as successful as Neighborhood Dining Group and Sean Brock can't demonstrate, it can't exercise some sort of artistic integrity. I, I, I don't know what it's I don't know what it's all worth. <laughs> Just like <laughs> now, on the practical side, I totally understand this, right? You know, do they, you though? Do you? Because yeah, now I, they're serving the same thing as twenty seven other restaurants. I know, I know, but you know the same thing has, has happened with Husk. I ate Husk uh, for lunch a couple weeks ago for the first time in a long while, and um, it's still really good. But but the, the menu, which was originally going to be a celebration of all the produce and the purveyors and whatever came in that door that day, was going to you know they still do do it. Some of that, but the, you've got the the same the pig's ear lettuce wraps. The, the, you know, they have their menu has See, evolved to what the people expect when they come in the door. And this is what I think yeah. they should have done. If I was a business <laughs> consultant, and there are many reasons I am not. I think they should have turned McCready's Tavern. If they weren't going to stick with McCready's Tavern, because again, it's not all about me. I think they just should have turned it into Brock's greatest hits. They should have just done the husk burger, the pig <laughs> ear, whatever. Just what all the tourists feel like they have to have to serve that all day long. Six of the dishes you got to cross off your list and let Husk be a restaurant again because they have a really talented crew, both front and back of house. And I think it would be great if Husk could just be Husk. Yeah. Well, I know, but that's just, that's long been the complaint of anybody who hits it big with a couple of sure. menu items that now you can't take it off the menu. You've got but to But you have could this. take it off the menu if you have another restaurant to put that's them true. at. That's, that's what true. I'm saying. So you can say, oh, you want the burger? You got to go over there. Well, I feel like to some extent that's sort of what McCready's was supposed to be. That we can do the tasting format over here and then we'll have McCready's Tavern, a little bigger format for those who aren't really into the whole orchestra thing. But even there, they're having to make shifts and adjustments. Too. Right. But I think they should have gone to full on sort of like Schaumbrock Shrine <laughs> at McCready's Tavern just because look we had the people at the tasting menu I don't remember which of the couples it was but the guys through like his sixth or seventh course everything is lovely and graceful and dainty and he said so he's like is Sean going to get her soon to drink bourbon with us you know that's what he really wanted yeah. that's what he really wanted was a husk burger and a bourbon and so I just feel like they should have made it like you know Schaumbrock Disney World over at McCready's Tavern <laughs> and let husk be a great well, restaurant well you never know they may, they may still do that. He's, right. he's, he's opening a couple new ones right now. Maybe when he's done with that, they'll come <laughs> cycle back around to Charleston and, and create like a little shrine, pictures of him and, not, and he's all into guitars now. But guitars and uh, and, and uh, right. effects pedals all over the walls. And, <laughs> exactly. and they have a little shrine. That, that's yeah. a great idea. Well, yeah. Thank you. It's, it's for free. For, for free. Right. Johnny King Group. That's why I'm not a business consultant. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. But I, under, I understand it. That, that, to me, this is like the, the ultimate you know, betrayal. I, I, no, not betrayal. <laughs> I, I feel like it's, it's human because I feel myself. I love the concept. I love the concept that you're going to have calf head soup on the menu and all these things. And I love going there once, but do, but then do I actually go back again and again? And I again? went back. I went back. I took. I was taking everyone who came to town, and each time you could tell they were losing heart yeah. in the. You know, and then by the time I guess I was last there, maybe in May. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, no. No, nobody came. No, I get it. I get it. I get it. It was not a successful business (laughs) strategy. I'm just sorry that they settled on one that was so generic. Well, this is just, yeah. And, and, but I think it's going to happen, which is, is convenience sneaks in, you know, and um, having it your way or having it easy, you know, is is going to always sneak in, which is, uh, you know, one of the reasons is the cheesy edition, not only the pizza, but uh, as you were talking about McCrady's and giving people what they want, that I'm doing research right now on a sort of, an article that's turned out to be more complicated than I thought it was going to be, which is uh, that you know the the Velveeta Rotel sure. dip, which is like one of the simplest things ever. Ah, to, to that's the, the one that Arkansas claims as its own. Yes, it's Arkansas <laughs> versus Texas. There's right. a whole thing there, and then I'm I'm deep in the patent office right now, trying to figure out who actually invented Velveeta, mm-hmm. which is a more challenging. Uh, topic that I thought was going to be, I thought would be, be really interesting. Um, so I haven't quite nailed that one down, but you know, it is the classic simplest party dish. You melt a block of Velveeta cheese and you dump in a can of Rotel tomatoes with chilies, let it melt and stir it up and then start dipping chips in it. So that's the ultimate convenience. As I was doing this, you know, so I'll, I'll have to dig more into the whole Velveeta Rotel thing. Well, well, Te- Texas totally has it nailed, by the way. It's not Oklahoma. But before before uh, we go on, can I can I ask what is exactly Velveeta cheese? Ah, well, that's oh, that's, that's part question. of the interesting thing. Yeah. Um, it, it's a pasteurized. Uh, cheese processed <laughs> cheese. But, but what does that mean? Like, which, what's different about Velveeta cheese? This is what I'm trying. I'm actually it, going through the the patent process is interesting. But it, what I've nailed down so far, I'm not done with it yet, is that it came about as a way for cheesemakers to make something out of out of the broken wheels of cheese. So if you have you have cheese breaks in the pro, mm-hmm. in manufacturing, you got it sitting around. What do you do with it? You can't really sell it, and you can't stick it back together again. And what um, the uh, and I, who exactly did it? But it was a company that eventually became the Velveeta Cheese Company that then got bought by Kraft. But what they learned, figured out was that they could, and they weren't the first ones to do it. They just came up with a better process. But you could take these pieces of like Swiss cheese or or American cheese, and then mix them with chemicals to break down the, I guess it's uh, casein, I guess you call it, the, mm-hmm. the, and break that down a little bit. Uh, and, and they added whey into it, and then they could heat it and melt it, basically, then mold it, and it would turn into this, hey, it's cheese again. <laughs> you know, they, they recreated cheese. And um, the really interesting thing is that when they first came out of the gate, uh, the they were advertising as this new, better, the best, the finest cheese in the world. It was, it was really sold as being this great flavor. You know, convenience wasn't a big, big part of it, but eventually it, it became a, you know, a big selling point was how convenient it was just to, to carve it up. Yeah, I just want to say briefly, I want to hear more about cheese and Rotel, <laughs> but that the folks, I think we, we talked about um, Francis and Bronwyn Percival, who just came through town, who wrote this, who have written a book on the fight for real cheese. Um, and they take that fight very seriously and, and literally. The, like, yeah, diametrically opposed it, to yes, Velveeta. Yeah, 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 completely <laughs> so. But so what they point out in their book, and as I said, they're touring the South now, so people may have a chance to hear them. But it's really interesting that in the process of all this heating and pasteurizing, heating and pasteurizing and Chasing away these things that make, you know, people both have fears about them, founded and unfounded, regarding safety. And additionally, they make the cheese making process more difficult because now you have microbes that have minds of their own. Uh, I mean, no minds for real, but, you know, they do their, <laughs> they own, do their thing. own thing. They do sure. their own thing. And so in the kind of industrialization process, many of these microbes have been 
like obliterated forever. And so that's the interesting thing is that they talk about certain cheeses because it, certain cheeses are now endangered because certain the microbes themselves the microbes are extinct. It needs different. It's not the same. It needs different microbes to make it a particular type of cheese. I never exactly. thought about that. I, I, I didn't either. And what they talked about is that cheese farmers don't really or cheese makers, excuse mm-hmm. me, don't farm goats or cows. They farm microbes. Really Which is interesting because we have yeah. anybody who does like a bakers who have their sourdough starter, correct? And then whiskey makers who have their yeast recipe. There's a legend that which one was it? I can't remember which whiskey maker used to drive the yeast from his house to the uh, distillery, buckled in with a seatbelt in the front seat because <laughs> oh. he had to project that. My grandpa's self Chinese takeout, yeah. <laughs> or the, I guess the sour mash. But it's like yeah. the same, same idea. Yeah. The yeast within that sour mash was the unique thing for his whiskey. Right. Um, but I just think it's also... And think about it in cheese. And, and me neither. And, but, and so I think it's so interesting is it's not just the fact that you're making a choice. Oh, I'll have this cheese. I'll have that cheese. The things that make flavor have like been removed from the universe forever. And so just the fact that there are people eating Velveeta actually changes what's available to those who don't want to. And I thought, thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, that is interesting. Yeah. I, I hadn't thought yeah. about that at all. But yeah, there's you know definitely Velveeta... And this is a time it, which you can only understand because this is really in the in the teens and twenties, mm-hmm. in the wake of the Pure Food and Drug Act, and how much adulteration and people are getting sick from their food and everything else. Sanitary pasteurization, no microbes, cleanliness. That was the big selling point. So, and as you say, for good reason, yeah. people are dropping dead. And so. if you if you read the early marketing, it's all focuses on how it's wrapped in the factory, and because a lot of stuff would get made in these big bulk containers and end up at at these stores where they may sit around and pick up God knows what. And, right. You know, you know, and so the fact that you bought it already wrapped and from the factory straight to you was a huge selling point right. because and you wouldn't get sick uh, from some sloppy grocer you know, not handling cheese. And just long. the fact that it has a standardized shape and size. And, <laughs> yeah. for, you know, that's really great because other – first of all, I mean, at the same time we've talked about there were arguments about where you getting – where weights and measures fare in a lot of mm-hmm. groceries, right, because people felt they were getting cheated. So if you had like this kind of hunk that didn't have a, you know, a clear shape, it's like, well, how much is that really? Yeah, it's funny. Totally unrelated, but yeah. except that it, it is this idea of like old problems coming back around. There's been – big kerfuffle in Texas mm. barbecue joints because of the That's right. Department of Agriculture um, originally had some kind of, I can't remember exactly what the rule was, but about having to have your scales inspected and a sign and all this, and they right. recently waived them. Um, so everyone's all worried about that, but you know, but you're putting a thumb on the scale. That's like such a 50-year-old concept. No, no one worries about it anymore. <laughs> right. You're getting screwed over by your butcher or by, you know, by, by getting underweight. But but you used to. So you yeah, sure where... did. Yeah, and I mean people still worry about getting cheated. It's yeah. just, you know, we don't use those kind of scales in well, most cases. But... I think just what happened is it got so heavily regulated that it ceased right. to be a problem. So, right. so people stopped worrying about right. it. Right, success and, story. Yeah. yeah, but I guarantee you if they didn't inspect the scales, yeah, there'd be somebody in there starting sure. to tweak that thing back. Yeah. Um, what I came up with while researching Velveeta, though, uh, was something I didn't expect is related to that is Kraft in 1949 uh, came out with a brand new product, which is the Kraft Deluxe Slices, mm-hmm. which is sliced cheese. So, which is the, what's the greatest thing since sliced bread? Yeah. Sliced cheese. Up until then, uh, which I, di- I didn't realize, they, they had been selling pasteurized, their, their, their processed cheese, American cheese, basically, which is a similar kind of process of making that that loaf, but they brought it out originally in 1921 in a five-pound block. That's what that was their original American, you know, Kraft American yeah. cheese product. Uh, apparently, you know, so up until 
1949, you would go to the grocery store and you could have the guy slice the cheese for you mm -hmm. in the deli or wherever you're buying your, your cheese from, but it all just came in blocks. Um, and, and so, but the, the advertising, also in another way of all old things being new, people make a big deal today about native content and <laughs> advertisers or you're, you're paying for right. articles. This is from the not the not the Post and Courier. This is from the Camden, New Jersey Courier Post mm -hmm. from 1949. I'll just read you the first sentence and tell me if you think a reporter wrote this or somebody at the craft company. One of the most sensational new products in all cheese history, Kraft Deluxe Slices of Pasteurized Processed Cheese, has been announced by the Kraft Food Company. Kraft cheese is pretty good. Sounds it's just like a grilled reporter. cheese sandwich or something like that. <laughs> It is funny though that a lot of the whole idea is that it was it was sliced and wrapped and sealed in the factory, came pre-sliced, and it says store slicing and store packaging of sliced cheese is no longer required. Uh, the ease of purchase without wait uh, without waiting for cheese to be sliced and the ease and convenience of refrigerator storage and serving. So big, the biggest advance in the history of cheese right there in 1949. Um, what I thought was also interesting, uh, they've been working on this for a while. Uh, World War II delayed progress, <laughs> but since then, craft technicians have perfected all phase of manufacturing. So the Nazis almost kept us from having uh, sliced cheese, but we, we, we beat the Nazis and we got our cheese. Uh, and also the last little funny thing, so originally you could get Craft Deluxe slices in a couple different, you get American, you could get Swiss, you get Old English brand, which is sort of their cheddar, you can still get mm. that today. Mm -hmm. And I thought pimento. Oh, you could get that? sliced pimento cheese uh, from Kraft right there in the in the slices. So a little bit of a cheese history. Very there. convenient. Uh, so the, this um, this reminds me of something that I wanted to bring up. Um, it, it reminds me of Have y'all been following Chipotle and their queso? It's vaguely, a little bit. That they they do they made a big deal about bringing out queso, right? Right. And well, it's, it's long been uh, something that's been lacking from Chipotle's menu. Most. Uh, you know, most Mexican-themed like restaurants will have a, a queso option. The, one thing I think a lot of people actually don't realize is that there are like very distinct types of queso. So, like in the southeast, it tends to be like this very white, creamy, mm -hmm. and then there's kind of this more Tex-Mex style of queso. So, first of all, Chipotle. The, I'm sorry. Wait, in the southeast, would you call it queso? I just call it cheese dip. Uh, it, people call it both. Okay. Yeah. yeah, it's it's been called queso for a while in, in the southeast. southeast. Yeah. Okay, but it was right. mostly from Tex-Mex chain. Okay. Bringing it in, got it. but got it. Yeah, I worked at Tex-Mex chain many years ago, okay. and we said we had queso. Okay, yeah. mm -hmm. I think the uh, the Velveeta and Rotel is more reminiscent of, of like that Tex-Mex yep. style exactly. of queso. So the, the the Chipotle queso is is in that style, um, in, in the Texas style. Yeah, in, in that in that style, and as opposed should, to Moe's, which is based in Atlanta and has the white creamy mm -hmm. style of, of queso. Which is interesting. I do remember when, I remember when the first Taco Bell opened up when I was probably about 10 years old in Lawrenceville, Georgia, and it was like just the most exotic experience ever. We just didn't have it in the South. And then the sort of, the sort of semi-standard Mexican chains that, that I never quite figured the story out. They all all have the same same name, but they, they don't seem to be run by the same same people. But the menus are very very mm -hmm. similar. There's a whole interesting story. Those sort of came along. You, you, they would have chili con queso on the menu, which is the way it was in Texas, mm -hmm. and it would confuse everybody because mm -hmm. they, they think it's they're not going to order the chili because they mm -hmm. think it's a big bowl of meat and beans, right. and so it became just queso. Right. Well, I would say, and I have not yet seen it, but for anyone who has questions about queso, Lisa Fain's new book called Queso yes. is out Lisa this week. So, <laughs> <laughs> she blogs as a homesick Texan, has had cookbooks out before, but anyway, she now has a book on queso. I, I'm starting to dig into this more. I'm really in the middle of it with with Velveeta because uh, right. uh, Rob Walsh, a Texas food writer, has 
has written a big defense of Velveeta as a base for queso and saying, mm-hmm. yeah, you, it, you can try to make it too fancy. It and, melts well, really this, well. This yeah. is what I was going to say, though, is what I think is really interesting. So ch- Chipotle queso is perhaps one of the most anticipated developments in fast food. You said you should write that for that, that newspaper. Okay, well, here's why I can't. It has been universally panned. Yeah. It's not very good. But I hear that new chicken at McDonald's is great. I, I, all I know was that I was waiting for it, and then it came out, and then like Twitter blew up. And with but right. is it generally think, universal? I, it's terrible. Or yeah, pretty much. I think I think that <laughs> it is. What happened is what you just talked about, Robert. Uh, so obviously, you know, Chipotle is very famous for their you know all natural. Mm-hmm. Oh, food they with tried integrity, to make it natural. quote unquote. Oh, I did read about and that. that. Yeah. yeah, and that's the problem is that queso, as people expect it, requires like a level of consistency, like a, a consistency, a creamy consistency that is very, very difficult to accomplish. Right. So one of the universal complaints that I've seen about Chipotle's queso is that it has a floury texture. I'm, I'm making air quotes that right. you can't see. Uh, so I... I looked into this now there is no flour in the recipe that what there is is cornstarch yep. mm. so so like that's a thickening agent to compare that to moses M- moses <laughs> moses <laughs> moses um okay so now what they use as a thickening agent is guar gum so I, I guess Which I guess will thicken just about anything, you right? Can, you know, um, so now I, I guess in in Chipotle's universe, guar gum does not have integrity, and cornstarch does. Wait, cornstarch or corn syrup? Cornstarch. Cornstarch. Corn okay. Oh, that makes more sense. Yep. Okay. Gotcha. Right. Yep. 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 Um, cornstarch is is going to give you a different texture than than guar gum does. It's not going to give you that yeah. r- rich, creamy texture that you're expecting. Well, and that's always been the problem with with using regular cheeses for melted things. Is yep. it has the, the oils release, and you get like you know oil slick, and then the cheese sort of breaks into long. Sh- strands, it becomes that stringy, it doesn't become right. gooey and liquidy. Because this often happens in nicer restaurants that have to put together a lunch menu, they put together a grilled cheese with like, you know, the most wonderful French cheese. You're like, this is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it, does, it doesn't melt correctly. What, what I thought was interesting though is I was having like a conversation with one of my friends about this. You know, I, I use, I throughout that, that exact same line, like it's unclear to me why cornstarch has integrity and guar gum doesn't. And because one is from corn, one's from seaweed, right? Because well, one you yeah. have in your kitchen cabinet, and one so you don't. that that that's my my take is that it's just entirely has to do with familiarity. My friend responds, "Well, I think cornstarch is natural," and I'm like, "Well, but hold on, what does that mean? I mean, you can't go out into the field and squeeze like, a kernel of corn. <laughs> yeah, you, you, there's no like plant that is producing cornstarch. It's a highly processed ingredient. It's not natural at all." It's well, just, but but the Argo box has a Native American on right. it, and I think that's probably seriously. Well, I think that marketing is probably like, oh, that's well, this whole comes down to go back to McCrady's. You know, it's, it's all about expectations. I'm looking up guar gum here just to see, but it's made of guar beans. Yeah, uh, not not see, but also the seaweed. There's another one that was made from seaweed, but mm. guar beans. Well, that's a bean. You got to process the bean to get the guar gum. You have to process. Yeah, the yeah. I mean, so that's what, what I'm what saying. Like, difference? it's they're they're both. Processed ingredients. I think it's I think it's in the mind of the consumer. Yeah. For sure. 
This reminds me of, have you been following the um, the restaurant that was passing off Popeye's chicken? I have, actually. <laughs> no. Yeah. What was that? So it's very it's much a restaurant in California, like, yeah, I yeah, believe. It's and, like just some local restaurant. Or was it, yeah, somewhere, just a local restaurant. So it is exact inverse of the Chipotle situation. So instead of trying to like smuggle something natural into a, what's really a fast food restaurant, they're like, well, we're a good restaurant. Like, let's just sell Popeye's fried chicken. Well, they had that. Yeah, they had like a bunch of stuff on the, it's sort of like, a, I guess like a, I don't want to say a meat and three, but kind of like just sort of home sure, cooking kind yeah, of restaurant. I don't mean to say they're yeah. like, you don't, it's not a ticketed yeah. restaurant. And we'll then somebody literally saw them bringing a big <laughs> old bag and at first thought it was just like for the staff or something. And they right. asked me, oh no, the, the, the fried chicken that they serve for like what, a $12 fried chicken plate or whatever. Exactly. They're just getting down the street. <laughs> And it yeah. turns out they don't have a fry, a deep fryer, and they wanted to do chicken. And, uh, and they know Popeye's yeah. makes good chicken. Yeah. And the interesting thing is there has not been a tremendous amount of outrage because everyone likes Popeye's <laughs> fried chicken. Psychology is huge in food. Convenience will win out even when we don't necessarily want it to. And what's real and natural is often in the, the mind of the consumer. Exactly. And I think we talked today about how much emotion continues to be wrapped up in eating. I mean, that Zombie Bob's pizza could have been great. I was so angry. I never would have known. That's all for this edition of The Winnow. We recorded today's episode in the highly convenient podcasting studios at the Post and Courier building in downtown Charleston, South Carolina. My desk is just outside. If you enjoy listening to The Winnow, please help other listeners find us too. Just go to iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you download your podcasts and like us or leave a rating. The Winnow is a production of the Post and Courier and Palmetto New Media. Our producer today was the cheesy J.M. Parker. Our theme music is by the Bluestone Ramblers. And until next time, I'm Robert Moss. And I'm Hannah Raskin. Now get out there and eat.